Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. We are very excited. We have Chiara Marletto with us today, and uh, we have an interview planned with her. Plus, we have everybody else. We've got um, Cameo, Tracy, and Sadia here. Everybody say hello. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> nice to be here. All right. I, I think I'm going to get just straight into it so we can utilize time here. But uh, uh, Chiara, how did you get involved with uh, David Deutsch's constructor theory? Um, so I was a um, PhD student in Oxford at the time. So it was uh, 2011. And uh, at the time I was looking for understanding this idea that von Neumann had about um, constructors that are these generalized programmable machines that can emulate uh, features of living systems. And the way I landed on that is that I was interested in quantum biology. So I kind of my initial uh, goal in, in PhD was to try to figure out how to apply some of these ideas from quantum information to the realm of, of biology and specifically understanding some of these features that uh, self-reproducing entities like bacteria um, have and whether they can use quantum effects to, you know, speed up their, their, their functionalities, et cetera. And somehow, you know, as I was studying, I was sort of digging into this work that von Neumann um, produced. This was uh, something that he did in the 50s. I just stumbled upon this nice talk that David gave at the Clarendon Laboratory, which is the part of the physics department, about constructor theory. And I thought, hey, you know, there's someone who's actually working on an, an, an extension of the ideas that von Neumann had. Uh, and then I realized that actually this was much more powerful than, than von Neumann's original ideas. And um, so I got uh, hooked and I um, ended up basically working full time on that during my PhD. And then later on also uh, developing it on my own in various directions. So that's how it happened. Do, do bacteria use quantum effects for information? Do, like, do you know? If oh, yeah, I, I think, um, well, I mean, there's this trivial sense in which they do. So, of course, um, we, you know, the bacteria just work according to, of course, the laws of quantum theory. So in, in some sense, all physical systems in, in, in this universe obey the laws of quantum theory. But then there is this other deeper sense that has fascinated both um, theoretical physicists and biologists uh, in, in equal measure in a sense of whether you know natural selection has, has come up with methods to exploit quantum effects a bit like quantum computers do to to sort of speed up some functionalities and uh, there are some theories about for example photosynthetic bacteria um, so these are bacteria that live um, on the bottom of the sea so they receive very few photons uh, so they need to really maximize the efficiency of conversion of the photon energy into chemical energy for their own things. Um, and there are theories that kind of suggest that they might be actually using uh, a quantum speed up like uh, effects. And these theories are at the moment are not fully confirmed. So I think in a way they are conjectures. Uh, we haven't had, um, you know, it's hard to make experiments because it's hard to test these systems they are very messy. But I think this is like what uh, motivated quantum biology, uh, and which is like a, an existing field. Okay, that makes sense. I guess I had heard that there was some theorization around photos, photosynthesis and yeah. quantum effects. Okay. Yes. Now, in your book, 
you say, wouldn't it be wonderful if it were possible to take inspiration from these principles which relate to counterfactuals and imagine an entirely different way to formulate the laws of physics, one that takes counterfactuals as primitives and the laws of motion and initial conditions as derivative? Now, this is something that caught my attention, although this is something that David Deutsch in his first paper says something somewhat similar. And I've always been a little confused by it. And so I wanted to ask about this. The, the issue that I don't think I understand is why would it be, it seems like constructor theory would be a very valuable theory just exactly the way it is, even if it didn't turn out that the, the laws of motion initial conditions were derivative um, of it. What is motivating the desire to see it as underpinning all of physics rather than being something new that gets added into physics and expands the way we think of physics? I really like this question because um, it touches on on a, on a tension which is actually um, at the at the heart of this program in 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 a way. And um, so the tension is exactly what you the, the, you know the thing that you just mentioned that um, on the one hand you couldn't think of constructor theory of, of the program of, of of adding principles that are based on counterfactuals to the existing laws of physics as a as a kind of supplement of existing physics in a way that it gives us more tools to you know, describe the universe. And that's already quite cool if it works in that way. So it's, it's like um, you know, inventing a new methodology uh, that yeah. allows you to kind of go deeper. Uh, and, and in that sense, that doesn't need to, as you said, um, you know, doesn't need to represent anything more fundamental than, say, dynamical laws themselves. It could just be something that you add on the side, which help, uh, you know, which can help um, understanding things better. But then, and I think this is uh, actually the vision that David had um, when he wrote his uh, sort of initial seminal paper, where he kind of outlined the whole philosophy of the approach. Uh, the hope is that not only um, will this new approach add methodologies that are helpful to understand things better, but it could also provide a deeper foundation for the existing laws. And that is necessary, that's considered as necessary, at least in, in, in different, to a different degree by, by both myself and David, because um, the dynamical law plus initial condition framework isn't in itself um, very satisfactory as an explanation of, for, for lots of phenomena that exist in the universe and that should be actually included into physics, but currently are not, or are only imperfectly included because the dynamical laws are not quite um, sufficient. And so as always in physics, it seems natural that when you find an explanatory tool that can dissolve or solve problems uh, within an existing framework, that framework becomes somehow um, derivative or secondary with respect to this new set of laws and tools that you have discovered. And so th that's the second and more ambitious way of looking at constructor theory. We, we don't know if it will succeed this kind of vision, but I, I think it's, it's, if it's not constructor theory, it should be something else that provides a deeper explanatory framework for the dynamical laws that we currently know. And I think if it's not constructed theory, it should be something else, but there should be some additional stuff that we discover as being deeper and more fundamental than these laws that we are currently using. Okay, that makes sense. In the conclusion of 
David's original paper, he says the principles of constructor theory that I propose may be false. Um, and then he goes on to say, but if, if, if the idea is false, then something else will have to remedy. And then he lists out several of the things that in your book, you show that constructor theory can remedy. Yeah. Um, so I, I had often wondered about what he meant there. And, and I guess it's what you're saying, that it may be false that it underpins all of physics, but it, it, it clearly has something true to it. It's already solved substantial problems in physics. Just from reading your book, you go through several examples of that. Is that correct? Yes, this is correct. I think um, the, so we, we have to be, uh, be careful here because there are lots of ideas um, that this question somehow uh, brings into, um, into focus. So the first point to make is that, so constructor theory is a set of, you know, is made of a set of principles. And these principles are, on the one hand, supposed to be new laws. So they are, they add to the existing laws as we know them. They have continuity in terms of logic with some principles that exist in thermodynamics, such as the second law or the conservation of energy and so on, in the sense that they're not formulated as dynamical equations, but they are formulated in these more general terms about, with constraints about counterfactuals, what's possible and what's impossible. Uh, but they are new laws. And, and in that sense, um, they, as new laws, may be false. So for example, it could be that the uh, principle of interoperability of information, which is one one of these new principles that we proposed recently, could, um, which basically kind of captures the idea that information can be uh, copied from one system to another with no uh, restrictions and so on. Um, so this, this um, principle could be actually false in the form we proposed it. But um, the point is that the, the approach in itself, the fact that it's kind of using counterfactuals as additional things that are necessary to explain features of the dynamical laws um, et cetera, et cetera, uh, seems to be a robust new way of formulating laws, which is here to stay. And in a way, it was already there to stay because it exists already, as I said, in, in thermodynamics. It was used largely also in the theory of quantum computation um, and in information theory in general. So in a sense, what we are doing is a continuation of this sort of tradition just on a much broader scale. So I think that's what David meant with that comment. Okay. Now, that makes on sense. the other hand, the other stuff that you mentioned, the the, the new ideas that we proposed, uh, some of these new principles actually have consequences, and these consequences appear to be uh, directly testable. And therefore, as I said, it could be that they will be falsified at some point. They could be tweaked. But the hope is that this new approach with counterfactual will stay, and that's the kind of vision behind constructor theory. Okay, makes sense. Uh, actually, let me ask uh, one thing here. Um, I was actually wondering that, uh, like, so would you say that determinism is basically assumed for constructor theory? But why, by that, I mean, like, um, you know how in the um, many worlds interpretation, it's a pretty much deterministic view where it doesn't really leave any room for saying that there are certain possibilities that just never actualize but may just remain um, and, and kind of, you know, that other approach might leave room for indeterminism. Uh, would, would you say that the determinism is kind of assumed uh, as a priori for constructor theory? I think not necessarily in the sense that determinism is, it's a nice, it's a very nice question. I think the, so constructor theory is, doesn't have 
dynamics is, is a kind of primitive thing, right? So the determinism is um, often, at least most, you know, most formulations of what deterministic means require there to be some dynamical law that takes states into other states. And then one way of thinking about determinism is that let's say there's no stochasticity involved um, in the laws, a bit like, as you said, in, in the laws of quantum theory, where uh, stochastic evolution is, is not really there. I mean, this kind of Schrodinger equation, which is deterministic, and then you add on top some probabilistic stuff uh, with the Born rule and so on. But I think the, so, so in a way, constructive theory in itself doesn't require determinism to be, you know, principle of, of, of nature or anything like that. However, when we, when you go particularly to things like the uh, constructive theory of information, for example, where we lay out these principles that are um, needed for the counterfactuals that are required for information to be physically possible, then it's, it's implicit in some of these principles that it, it must be possible. One of the tasks that, so one of the kind of tasks that must be possible for information to be instantiated are one-to-one -one tasks. So things that don't uh, destroy or create information out of nothing, as it were. And but, but uh, wouldn't that? Uh, I'm sorry to interject there, but wouldn't yeah. that imply that uh, determinism? Yes. So it would imply if you were to make a model. So if you if you so the the concept of a task doesn't necessarily map onto a dynamical law directly. But once you you know, let's say you want to make a model for what it means for a constructor to perform a task under a certain dynamical law, then for these principles to be true, then it seems like these dynamical laws should be deterministic in, in the sense that, that you were envisaging. So you could say, it could be that there is a different constructor theory where these principles are not true, mm -hmm. in which, you know, deterministic dynamics isn't required. So, you know, I'm, I'm not ruling that out. But for the moment, at least, you know, if you, if you take these principles as correct in, in capturing what are the regularities you need for information in the universe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera then yes. The, so when you want to transfer these principles into constraints on dynamical laws, uh, this would suggest that the dynamical laws have to be deterministic. So, so, so for example, let's say uh, that uh, our universe, actually, there was some sort of an evolutionary principle whereby the universe is actually, the laws are changing or maybe even new laws are being created. So that, that means that the constructor theory should be able to handle because as long as laws are, you know, we can identify something as lawful, um, yes. that could, okay. Great. Yes, right. yes, exactly. And again, these laws are not the primitive things. So somehow they should be consequence of these more fundamental principles. In, in a weird way, it's almost like laws are something that is, it turns out to be a useful way for us to talk about things, uh, you know, yeah. okay, yeah. Karl Popper in his epistemology, particularly in his book, The Logic of Scientific Discovery, he formulates his epistemology in terms of universal statements. So for those who aren't familiar with logic, a universal statement would be uh, for all. So for all swans, um, color is white. That's a false universal statement because we know that black swans exist. Therefore, we can refute or falsify that uh, universal statement. But universal statements, what really makes them useful is that they forbid things so that you are able to refute them. I couldn't help but feel like there was an analogy there to constructor theory. Is that accidental, coincidental, or is constructor theory an, an attempt to inject Karl Popper's epistemology into physics? That is a nice point. I think, well, in, in this sense, I think constructor theory is not 
at heart any more Popperian than than other bits of physics. It's just that they are not explicit about it in some sense. So let me explain. The so all laws that traditionally regarded as fundamental, so they are primitive or or somehow they they are kind of they underlie everything there is in the universe. You know, you can take different definitions for fundamental, but broadly speaking, I mean something like that. So all these laws have the feature that um they forbid things in a in this in this in, in a kind of universal fashion so and then and then uh, sorry on top of this i think to um falsify them you have to go along the kind of pop process that popper envisaged so in in this sense i think you know the way in which you would falsify a constructor theoretic law isn't different from the way you would falsify like a um I don't know, Newton's laws or, or something like that. And likewise, um, Newton's laws, as well as the constructive theoretic laws we proposed, intended to, to be uh, universal. So they, they, they should um, you know, apply to uh, everything there is in the universe. And that's why we actually were able to falsify Newton's laws, because at some point we realized that that wasn't the case. And it turns out you know, that they're actually false. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's the that's kind of um, one bit of the answer to your question. The other aspect is that I think because of the way both um, well David in the first place, but also in some sense myself and other people working on this, because of the way we are thinking about science, it becomes more explicit perhaps that there is a Popperian influence in you know in the way we are we are uh, posing the problems that we want to solve and so on. And in this sense, maybe other, you know, in other branches of physics, this is not as obvious because people are not perhaps so interested in, in these epistemological aspects of the, you know, of the theories that they are investigating. But if they if they thought about what they are doing, uh, they would actually kind of, you know, discover themselves as Papirian after all. So so I think I I don't think constructive theory is any more Papirian in its foundations than the rest of science or physics specifically. Um, there is one particular point of contact with Popper's uh, epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge. And this is something that I think David has been very uh, keen on for, for a long time. Knowledge intended as a particular kind of information that uh, can be then defined in a sort of physical manner and puts uh, you know, this idea of knowledge without a knowing subject that somehow is dear to Popper directly into fundamental physics. So I think that's one point where, say, constructor theory gets more into uh, the Popperian epistemology camp than other physical theories. But this is in this specific regard, not as far as the general foundations, which I think are Popperian, broadly speaking, for physics as a whole. Okay, that makes sense. Now, on the other hand, I noticed that Karl Popper formulates his epistemology using something that, at least to me, seems very analogous to what you call the prevailing conception. For example, here's a quote from Popper in The Logic of Scientific Discovery. He says, for a universal statement without initial conditions, no basic statement, which would be a testable statement, can be formulated. And he's very specific about the, the need for and the importance of initial conditions. And he really, his epistemology formulates things in something that is basically initial conditions plus universal statements, which would be laws, which seems to me to be somewhat analogous to the prevailing conception. Yeah, this is a very nice uh, question. And I think the, 
so I guess that there is this aspect of me perhaps is, is relevant uh, to to mention that so in physics in general, not just in constructor theory, when you have a law that doesn't mention initial conditions and dynamical laws, for example, the conservation of energy, the way you test it is ultimately to um, you know to find a prediction about a specific situation which does involve setting up an experiment under some initial conditions and seeing what happens. So I think the logic of testing a theory does involve, as um, you know, so Popper said in that quote, uh, the in one way or another, the the fact that you 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 do check the um, kind of predictions of your specific laws in a particular control condition where you can set up an experiment of, of sorts. So that's one way in which you can, say, falsify a particular law. Um, and this is particularly true of principles. Some people think that principles are not testable precisely because they don't come as formulate, you know, they, they are not formulated in terms of dynamical laws and initial conditions. But that's um, untrue in the sense that you can then, um, given a principle, you can check a model that's compatible with it, and then you can... Um, specialize that model in a particular um, initial condition plus dynamical law type of situation and check the predictions of the, of the model. Now, okay. the, the important thing is that what we are trying to suggest in constructor theory is that the description or the explana an explanation that only uses statements that, you, that, that result to initial conditions and dynamical laws that this explanation isn't satisfactory, is not sufficient to describe the whole of physical reality. So the, the subtle point is that in order to explain uh, some of these predictions that use dynamical laws and initial conditions, you have to resort to these other things that are not formulated in this way, but can be tested through uh, um, you know, predictions about initial conditions and dynamical laws. And these other things are principles about counterfactuals. And turns out that actually these are deeper than the, the dynamical laws themselves. It's a bit like when you have, um, you know, you're thinking of, I don't know, general relativity, it has some dynamical laws and you can set some initial conditions uh, or boundary conditions, whatever. But there, there, there's, a, there's a whole set of principles that come with GR itself, some of which uh, are, you know, describes the, you know, they describe the, the features of space-time and the geometry of space-time and so on and so forth. And these principles are actually, in a sense, more robust and fundamental than the dynamical laws themselves. But ultimately, the way you test them is to uh, particular, you know, to, to find a particular prediction that they end up making about a specific dynamical situation. But in a way, the dynamical part of this is not the fundamental part, the principles are fundamental. Okay, that makes sense. Would you say that the, uh, the one of the reasons why this was inspired, the construction theory was inspired, was that uh, you know any type of concepts that you want to have powerful become part of a physical theory or a concept around which a physical theory could be made, such as information, uh, maybe there might be a push from uh, a physicist to understand it in terms of like the so far considered fundamental physics, like in you know, fields in terms of some, somehow to relate, relatable to the physics of the fields or particles and fields or? Yes, I, I think the, um, so that's exactly the type of view that we are trying to counteract 
So I think in, in some way, because dynamical laws and fields and, and so on have been so successful so far in various ways, and because most testing goes through them, there is an, somehow an assumption that everything that's fundamental has to be formulated um, in terms of those things. And, and this is a problem because, as you said, things like information are not the regularities that underlie information can't be expressed in those terms. And if you try to express in them in those terms, you end up with an approximate theory or with a theory that's um, subjective or brings observers into, into fundamental physics that doesn't, uh, you know, of course, satisfy scientific criteria of various kinds and so on. So I think in a sense, um, what we are pointing out is that in order to stick to this, let's just use initial conditions plus dynamical laws because they're very successful, we end up um, with theories that are non-satisfactory or at best approximative for phenomena that are actually very important and they could uh, lead to further important discoveries. And that's why we're advocating, let's try in a different way and take it take that way seriously, which is this one with the counterfactuals. Great. And, and just tying quickly to what Bruce uh, mentioned about Popper, in a way, so I can see that these principles could be tested where the initial conditions aren't necessarily as, you know, sometimes people talk about cosmological theories and the initial condition is meant to be like something at the big, big bang. But we can just always set up an experiment with some initial conditions and then we could test out, uh, you know, a certain model, which in a sense would kind of, uh, you know, would be a way of testing, I guess. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Great. Yes, exactly. This idea of a pre pre prevailing conception, I, I had never heard of that until reading David's paper and in, in your book. Now, I'm not a physicist, so that's not too surprising. I actually found it a little hard to believe that the prevailing conception was a part of physics, uh, in part because of what you said in your book, the fact that, that Newton's laws aren't set up as dynamical laws of motions plus initial conditions. So the foundations of physics really was largely rooted in counterfactuals. But talking with Sadia, who is um, a physicist, she has assured me that that really is the way physicists tend to think is in terms of this prevailing conception, even though that isn't part of the foundations of physics. Uh, I hope you can see why I was a little bit confused there. How did the prevailing conception creep into physics if it really wasn't part of the foundations of physics? Yeah, this is an interesting question. Let me speculate a bit about this because I have been myself trying to somehow understand how uh, we, we've uh, come to this, as you say. Well, I think the, the I mean, one, one possible answer is that the, so as I said, the method that uses dynamical laws and initial conditions is just very successful. And it has led to a number of great um, discoveries. So in, in physics, so I mean, Newton's laws are one example, but then later quantum theory and general relativity and um, also, you know, the atomic theory, the, the fact that everything, I mean, lots of phenomena can be reduced to microscopic explanations about uh, particles like atoms and subatomic particles and so on. Uh, moving about according to some trajectories that are set by the dynamical laws. So all of these um, great steps in understanding reality through physics have been made by largely by appealing to this, um, uh, you know, to this method of explanation through initial conditions and dynamical laws. 
And I think that has slowly made most physicists lean towards the implicit assumption that any new fundamental law should come in the form of initial conditions plus dynamical laws. So that should be like the, 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 that's the, the ultimate type of explanation you want for, for the universe. And um, I guess this is not, I, I think this has been somehow gone unquestioned for, for, for decades. And it's been um, supported, corroborated, this idea has been corroborated by the fact that it is really a very, very powerful way of doing things. It's, it's, it's stunning. It's just uh, amazing, you know, the amount of progress we've made sticking to this kind of logic. However, there is also a different way of doing physics, which is already implicit in thermodynamics. So there are, you know, these high level principles that, some, that somehow implicitly use counterfactuals. It has gone largely unnoticed that most of the times when there was a moment of, oh, we need to conjecture a new dynamical law, people were actually using the uh, power of principles, such as, say, the second law of thermodynamics or the conservation of energy and so on, to guide them to make guesses for the future laws. So somehow this has gone unnoticed by its there. And that's why I think, in a way, what, I, what we're doing with constructor theory isn't that different from this other tradition that exists in physics. It's just we are extending it uh, to a much broader um, set of things. And uh, we are hoping that therefore this prevailing conception that I prefer to call the traditional conception because um, I'm not, you know, I'm hoping at some point it won't be prevailing anymore, uh, will be balanced by the new approach that also uses other tools. And my view is that we won't make any progress about things like, uh, you know, understanding um, living systems and understanding uh, the way the mind works and so on from a physics point of view, unless we switch to this to this or a different mode, but at least a different mode of explanation from the dynamical laws, initial condition type of logic. So yeah. might, might one say that uh, physics has gotten stuck into an inductive rut where they're expecting the future <laughs> to resemble the past? Yeah. Actually, yeah. that's what I was going to say, too. It feels like with quantum theory, the success of quantum theory for the longest time under a sort of like an instrumentalist type of way might have actually further, uh, you know, where, where I think physicists started maybe not taking philosophy, uh, giving philosophy its rightful place. Because even in string theory, you've seen like the push had oh, yeah. been so much from like mathematics being the the horse that's you know, pulling the carriage and seem like they just kind of got carried away uh, without, you know, much philosophy being considered. Uh, seems like yeah. Einstein, Einstein actually took the approach where he was very much into philosophy and then he gave principles for his theory. But he actually, uh, interestingly, Barber has pointed out, Julian Barber, that he kind of settled more for an operational approach in the end and never really fully addressed some of the question that he actually took or, and uh, sorry, I, I thought I would just mention that maybe uh, too. It's a great point. I think it's true that, so I guess physics has uh, a huge bias towards empiricism and instrumentalism in various ways. And I think, uh, you know, once this was a good thing because, you know, it was supposed to sort of counteract attitudes uh, such as maybe dogmatic uh, religious stakes on, you know, on explaining things mm -hmm. in the universe. So this was, you know, a good thing at some point, but somehow this has gone out of hand. And to the point that I think um, 
it, it really trumps progress in, in many directions uh, in the fundamental sense. So of course you can, there are you know, countless fields of physics where, where people are making great progress and they never have to question maybe their uh, you know, empiricist take on reality because it, they're not wondering about some of these issues that are more, let's say the foundations. But when you're really thinking about the foundations of theories, it's very important to understand that, as you were mentioning, that there is um, much more to an explanatory theory of reality than just what uh, its empirically accessible content. And I think this is a thing that people massively struggle, struggle with. And this is also why there are so many misconceptions around there about quantum theory itself, because that's the only theory where uh, this dichotomy this between empirically accessible content and the explanatory content of the theory is most acute. And somehow, you know, people who are really sticking to empiricism end up uh, forgetting about the non-empirically accessible content of quantum theory, which is the most important thing in it. And they try to somehow fit the, the quantum theory as it is in, in some mold that doesn't belong to it. And that's how we end up thinking about, you know, all sorts of wrong views about, uh, you know, measurements and stuff like that. So yeah, I think it's it, this is empiricism and, and, and empiricism and instrumentalism have somehow a huge responsibility in, in perhaps uh, this fact that physics has got stuck. And I don't know if you felt this way, but now that I've kind of become after I left grad school in my PhD afterwards, I really dived quite a bit into philosophy. And I've literally, I mean, you're not going to believe this, but right now I'm thinking about going over all the main branches of physics. Because I know that I'm not going to look at the things the same way. Why aren't we taught physics uh, with that? You know, it, it's kind of, I mean, don't, I don't know if you had that experience or maybe it was just where I w w took physics, that the way physics is taught is very much like the, you know, like yes. professors hardly ever talk about like the philosophical implications or um, it's, it's very yeah. much as if you would teach an engineer or something, you know, which would be fine, but not for. Uh... Yes, I, I think the um, often I had I had a largely the same experience, and um, you know, other than maybe for a few fortunate cases of lecturers who were not like that, but I think most. I mean, the, the tone of the textbooks and the you know the tone of most lectures are is actually based on, as you say, um, emphasizing well only the predictive content of, of 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 the theory rather than say you know the principles are... yeah exactly the principles <laughs> what it says about physical reality and so on and i think that's also why i i guess physics isn't that um popular even like in say secondary school uh, settings uh -huh. and so on because um at least the way i was presented uh, um, physics was more like um you know, like a set of, it's like a, a, a cooking, a co cooking book or something, a set of recipes to, to solve problems that appear to be completely parochial. Like, you know, you've got to predict what happens to an apple when it falls from a tree. And that, that doesn't sound like mind boggling and, and interesting. Whereas uh, let's say at the time philosophy was much more interesting to me because it sounded like, you know, they were asking the right questions about the universe and stuff like that. And then later on, I realized that actually physics has the chance of answering some of these questions much you know in a in a deeper way than say um you know philosophy or 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 things like religion and so on of course um and and it 
it was quite late in my in my study, you know, physics that I realized that physics was much more fundamental than the way I was presented it. Oh, I had exactly the same experience. And, you know, I used to, I, I feel kind of like the odd one out because of the sort of problems that I used to get interested in. Uh, and, you know, it, it felt like I was just some sort of a dreamer or something, <laughs> whereas I really wanted to know what, you know, like when I took my... Uh, you know, the quantum theory course, I really wanted to know what, what the implications yeah. were for the nature of reality and stuff. But our, uh, I remember our professor saying, no, it's all about how we set up the system uh, and think about these things as a filter. And then when you get out, it's all about predictions. And, you know, I'm like, okay, <laughs> it was kind of a bit of a turn off. <laughs> yes. And exactly. It's not, as you say, I mean, the, the most important part of the, of, of the theories is really in its explanatory you know, set set of, of 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 tools, and most of them are not about predictions. They are really about you know when when you talk about the quantum state, there are all sorts of things that some of them are counterfactuals, some others are even informally expressed, but they're all important for the explanation to make sense. So this kind of brings me to another interesting question um, uh, that I wanted to ask you. Um, I, I wonder uh, whether you've thought about, because I know in your book you mentioned about the problem of time, and I know that you talk yeah. uh, or, to or are familiar with uh, Julian Barber's work too. Um, I was wondering, what, what are your thoughts on uh, the nature of time? Do you think that time might turn out to play a fundamental role in physics? Because it appears that so far, when you look into the theories, and I, I know that quite a few more uh, physicists are becoming convinced that time is pretty much going to turn out to be an emergent concept. And Barber, Julian Barber's done work, you know, quite a bit on general relativity and stuff, where he's shown how time yeah. turns out to be emergent. But I'm just curious, what are your thoughts since you've been thinking about these things in a deep way? Um, so, in constructor theory, time uh, isn't Primitive, so it's not one of those fundamental concepts because um, when 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 you state, for example, that a task or a transformation is possible or impossible, that um, doesn't doesn't refer to because it doesn't refer to dynamical law directly. It doesn't refer to um, time in the traditional way that say standard dynamical laws do, because standard dynamical laws have time built in as a parameter that that exists and and sort of labels different instance of the of the dynamical evolution uh, and then there's you know this improvement that we got with uh, general relativity where space and time ended up being handled in you know in, on the equal footing and that was like a very important step forward and so on um, now the fact that time isn't explicitly mentioned when we say a task is possible and so on doesn't mean that that isn't um, important to to incorporate in the constructor theoretic picture of of physical reality, and uh, so this is something that we haven't worked out yet because the mo at the moment the kind of statements we've been proving and uh, so on are at the same level as uh, what you do in say uh, the quantum theory computation, for example, where you're thinking of composing possible tasks with one another and you're thinking that whatever is performing these tasks uh, will have a clock in it and uh, it will you know, stop its evolution at some point. Um, and the fact that the task is possible exactly refers to all of these things. It's just that uh, because the tasks are primitives and the possible and impossible statements are the primitive statements, we never have to model um, what the fact that the task is possible means within, say, a dynamical framework. 
Um, would you say that it really wouldn't matter? Like, let's say that if time turns out to be some, in some sense, more fundamental, like really fundamental and global rather than emergent as in clocks being emergent. Um, you think that, I mean, you don't think that, I think based on what you said earlier, when we talked about determinism, it doesn't seem like it's going to really make much of a difference to constructor theory. So the, it won't make a difference in the, in the same way that it does uh, to the dynamical laws, right? So when, when people say uh, time isn't fundamental and they offer explanations that's, you know, for, for, for how to incorporate time in, in, in a non-fundamental way within the dynamical law, you have to work quite a lot because obviously the dynamical law has time built in and then you have to make an awful lot of work in order to um, go from timeless statements into a dynamical law type statement. So, and I think this is what, for example, Julian Barber has been doing for say classical mechanics. And uh, there are similar proposals for, um, you know, quantum theory, et cetera. Um, and so it, it won't be as hard, you know, it won't be making much of a difference uh, to constructor theory compared to what happens in the dynamical law type of approach when you're trying to say that time isn't fundamental. But it will be important for constructive theory to have a set of principles that underlie the notion of uh, clocks. So clocks are physical systems with certain counterfactual properties. And what uh, David and I would like to, to have, and this is something we're working on at the moment, is a theory that likewise that does the same for clocks as um, we, we did for information. So we want a theory that tells us what are the principles uh, that have to be satisfied by the by nature for clocks to be possible, and it's an interesting question that you are now posing, and and something that we haven't decided yet. In a sense, whether this will um, say that 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 time is is fundamental or not, according to the, these these uh, criteria that are set by these other proposals that you mentioned. So, in a way, it will be interesting to see whether these principles rule out or in some of the existing proposals to explain time within uh, standard traditional physics approaches. And the, the answer is very much open. So we don't know at the moment. Interesting. Actually, that's one of the things that I was really kind of interested in uh, looking at Julian Barber's work. And then I looked at David Deutsch's work. And then when constructive theory came out, I was so excited because I, I sort of I knew exactly what, what was the inspiration. But, but I still kind of lacked like what to do with it. But Julian Barber kind of talks about these time capsules or, uh, you know, and, and I, I kind of wondered what would be the relation with like some sort of a theory of information, but. Um. Yeah, there is a, uh, yeah, we, we expect that there is a relation and I think uh -huh. these principles for clocks will be more, uh, will somehow um, necessary principles for even the principles for information to be um, satisfied. And uh, so this will, you know, this will all be contained in this theory that we are trying to construct at the moment for clocks. But I think it's 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 interesting to see whether these principles will have some consequences in, say, ruling out some of the existing proposals for for incorporating time within fundamental physics in in a way that's not, you know, goes beyond the traditional approach. So would you say that, let's say, and, and now I'm going to, because based on some of the thoughts that I've had, uh, would non-locality, let's say that if non-locality turns out to be some sort of like more fundamental to locality, where locality and space are emergent. Um, I mean, 
I'm thinking that constructive theory is going to turn out then to be maybe like, you know, like an approximate theory, but what are your thoughts? I mean, this is kind of what I've been thinking, but. So um, the way, so, so far the constructive theory we formulated is based on a very, um, so a very kind of strong principle of locality. So in a way, any theory that has non-locality built in will be ruled out, or at least it shouldn't be a fundamental description of reality. It could be an emergent one or something of that sort. Um, now I, so I, this is really um, a camp where it's, it's really a, a kind of intuition. So there, there are no um, uh, other reasons than the fact that we have a number of good explanations that are based on locality. So the, the, the fact that we have a number of good explanations for physical reality that are local is mainly the reason why we expect, um, you know, locality to be a kind of good uh, principle to set out and look for better explanations. Of course, you know, it could be that um, we are wrong and um, it would be interesting to find out. Uh, and I think, as I said, this doesn't necessarily mean the constructive theory is in itself wrong. It just would mean that one of the principles um, isn't correct. However, I have a very strong feeling that uh, given that quantum theory and general relativity and um, uh, you know the and special relativity as well are all local, um, it sounds natural and and uh, you know nicely rooted in whatever we understand about the universe to expect that next year will also be local. Uh, and and um, however, I mean, I I think it's nice that there are uh, some groups that are looking in different directions, and I think non-locality is the thing that has been uh, sometimes misunderstood because there is this um, idea that entanglement in quantum theory leads to non-locality, uh, and that is wrong. I think it's it's a misconception that has been created by a jargon that people uh, created at some point when Bell's theorem was proposed. Um, yeah, but I think so. Other than the specific use of non-locality, which is not quite right, it's it's certainly interesting to investigate what happens if you drop locality uh, in a theory and see what other things uh, go away with it. And it's not even like we're dropping. I mean, I, I guess what I'm wondering because I've been thinking about Lee Smolin's work, the recent work where yeah. he takes time as global, and then locality is supposed to be like an emergent, and so are clocks uh, in that theory would be emergent. Uh, in a theory like that but I, I think that would be an interesting wouldn't you agree kind of like just sort of a thing to try out to see you know yes uh, I, I think it's it's uh, so I as I said I, I have a strong intuition that that isn't the way to go but I think it's interesting yeah. that some people are trying to see what, what that implies and it could be that this leads to something interesting too um, note that the theory of information I mean all of the good features of information and the fact that we even can set up tests and the theories are testable does require locality to be satisfied at least on some kind of mm -hmm. uh, scale. So if you, as you say, you know, you, you um, might want to have an explanation which is underlying everything uh, which is non-local, but then you would want that to be compatible with the fact that locality is satisfied yes. oh, uh, at a certain level of, uh -huh. you know, um, was yeah. it quantum mechanics that introduced, um, got people starting to take non-locality seriously? By the way, I agree that quantum mechanics does not actually imply non-locality. I, I think it's very much a local theory. Um, we just did a podcast on that with Sam Kuypers. Um, yeah. but, but is that where that came from? Like, 
it, it seems strange in a way that physics would even toy with non-locality as a layman on the outside. It sounds so supernatural. Yeah, I think that um, the intuition of physicists has always been, at least the majority of physicists that you know uh, put forward various theories was that so they were looking for theories that were local. Um, Newton was greatly bothered by the fact that his mechanics had um, some lock, some action at a distance built in. Uh, that was something that he really didn't like. And, um, you know, the theory of fields, which was proposed with, you know, first, first Maxwell's uh, equations with light uh, and so on, and then later on quantum field theory, um, have somehow managed to um, provide a relatively good explanation for um, a local theory that explains how disturbances are propagated in this local way that allows us to consider the effects on a physical system that is decoupled from the rest of the universe as being confined to that system only unless the system gets then coupled to other systems and then thereby propagating its uh, signals you know, elsewhere in the universe. Um, but I think you're right that somehow, um, as probably Sam Kuypers mentioned, uh, the well, quantum theory was initially misunderstood, and there were lots of comments, even from the founding fathers, to the effect that phenomena like entanglement and superposition um, could lead to a violation of, of some of these principles of, of locality uh, formulated in various ways. This isn't true. Uh, quantum field theory is uh, basically the you know based on on the fact that there's no action at a distance, uh, but but somehow this hasn't quite percolated from you know the the practitioners of of that field into the um, general areas of physics where people maybe are not so familiar with quantum field theory and they're still doing some quantum theory which isn't quite uh, relativistic and so on. And from there to the public. And so I think the idea that quantum theory is non-local is, is quite widespread. And despite it being wrong, it's still radically, you know, kind of rooted into, into the um, way in which people perceive quantum theory. And one of the reasons why it's quantum theory, unfortunately, is greatly misunderstood. And actually, you know, when we do quantum field theory, it, locality is actually the starting assumption, right? It's not like something that yes. pretty much we start by assuming that... Um... Uh, okay. Yeah. Right. Because the demandable equations are local in that way. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Is some of the resistance to giving up on non-locality because that would kind of force us into a many worlds interpretation and many people are bothered by that interpretation? Oh yeah, very much so. Um, I think the, um, so I think that there has been this phenomenon, which I, I quite, I can't quite explain uh, where, you know, quantum theory and general, general relativity get, you know, they're proposed um, around about the same time in a sense, you know, it's kind of around the same period. And uh, they're both mind boggling theories and both of them are really interesting and, you know, deep and have got lots of counterintuitive implications. And the quantum multiverse is one of them for quantum theory. But um, while GR, general relativity is, you know, largely considered as very hard to understand, but still um, fine. So no one, very few people, I mean, there is a discussion about what it means and so on, but somehow no one has created 
uh, a case about it. Uh, quantum theory, on the other hand, is actually, we are stuck on discussing some things such as, is it non-local? Do we have a problem with measurement? How do we fit classical reality within quantum universe, blah, blah. And all of these questions are actually solved, answered very nicely within this um, many worlds or Everettian um, take or relative states take on, on quantum theory, which has been perfected since it was proposed by Everett by many people. Um, and But somehow the fact that, as you say, you have to take this step and consider things like um, uh, different branches of the wave function as um, coexisting, um, the fact that, that the ultimate descriptors of physical reality are not real numbers, but they are matrices, operators, Q numbers, which is basically the central tenet for locality in quantum field theory. Uh, th these things haven't been swallowed. They, they, they haven't been swallowed as much as, um, you know, the fact that, say, space-time is uh, represented by four-dimensional manifold and its geometry is very counterintuitive, doesn't correspond to what we expect, uh, you know, in, in what we see, what we experience. Obviously, you know, I perceive my reality around me as um, just a 3D thing and time is flowing and, and it doesn't seem to match the idea that Einstein suggests within GR, but somehow I'm not using this as an argument against thinking that space-time is fundamental. Whereas in quantum theory, uh, even practitioners sometimes get fooled and they say, oh, but I experienced a classical reality. How come, how can this be compatible with what quantum theory says about the quantum multiverse? And, and, and I, I still don't know why we haven't moved past this stage, given that there is a perfectly fine explanation for how the quantum multiverse works. Uh, just to be fair, and this is something I haven't had the chance to dive into, but I'm just uh, merely saying it as, a, as I've heard from uh, Lee Smolin, um, that uh, when you look at the quantum gravity research so far, uh, I remember him saying that uh, the research in quantum gravity has kind of indicated uh, there are some conflicts there that uh, seem to indicate that non-locality may be might need to be taken seriously at the fundamental level. But since I haven't really explored it, I can't really say much other than just quoting him. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about that, or I mean, not that. Well, not I um, think that the so the, the best approximation we have to quantum theories of gravity. Um, are local in the sense that quantum field theory is. Now, it could be that, I mean, if I understand correctly, I think Lee Smolin has a view that uh, doesn't quite, that cl clashes with this idea of the quantum multiverse. And I think he is not happy with it, if I understand correctly what, what he's thinking. So in some sense, maybe that's why he then goes on to saying, well, given that I am not happy with, you know, taking on board the, the descriptors of fundamental sorry, the, the fundamental descriptors of physical reality are Q numbers and not uh, real numbers, then I, I have to pay a price for that. And one of the prices you have to pay is the fact that you have to somehow think that, that dynamical laws are non-local. Uh, by the way, this was true. Um, I mean, this was realized by, by this, um, by, by Bohm. Um, the Broglie and Bohm have this theory called, uh, what we call now uh, pilot wave theory or the Broglie-Bohm uh, theory, 
um, which is like a theory which is empirically more or less equivalent to quantum theory, uh, but its uh, dynamical laws are non-local and they um, use additional descriptors that are real valued, uh, which obey these non-local equations. So if you're interested in, I think um, po possibly Lee Smolin is interested in that and he might- No, he actually kind of, he talks about it in his book and then, then he kind of pretty quickly ditches that idea to showing that, you know- Yeah, because that's, that's exactly, that theory is actually problematic in various yes, ways. Yes. So, so he recognizes that. I think yeah. the motivation is not to get too sidetracked, but I think it seems like his motivation is somewhere coming from certain suspicions from research in quantum gravity. Um, but there may well be. There are lots of wild different models that have been proposed. Uh, the problem with these models is that we we are not sure how to link them with um, somehow um, predictions that can be then tested. So in a sense, though, they might be appealing in some sense it would be nice to have a way of first explanatorily connecting them with what we know at uh, the scale that we can test oh he has uh, actually come up with some really interesting tests but not to get away from it again but yeah I, I don't think it's your theory I don't want to get too within, within but, reach so I think it's it's um yeah I I'm kind of very skeptical about that uh -huh. well sure. his his test, the one that you explained to me, Sadia, it is an existential statement. So it actually violates Popper's epistemology because it's not a universal statement. So it's not actually an empirical test yet in its current formulation. Yeah, I guess we can just discuss that some other time. But <laughs> not to take but, yeah, I think it's interesting. This, this, is, this brings in another element to the discussion in the sense uh -huh. that quantum gravity is, um, so there are, what happened in that domain is that um, since we realize that quantum theory and general relativity are fundamentally different as far as the information theoretic structure is concerned in the sense that quantum theory supports universal quantum computing models and GR is a classical theory, so it doesn't support um, quantum effects or quantum computation, if you like. Um, well, what happened is that lots of people try to then, you know, come up with very smart proposals to put them together. Uh, and the, well, we've got some kind of working model, which is like a quantum field theory model, which we know is incorrect because it doesn't quite capture the full of the full GR, but at least can provide some predictions in some domains, but we know it's not going to be the right theory because it kind of uh, slaughters the whole of GR and makes it not true. Um, and at the same time, we have other models that are mathematically satisfactory, but somehow they don't quite, um, you know, it's very hard to, to actually make them predictive about, you know, uh, some real testable situations. So and wouldn't it be fair to say that then that, that, that some other options, like right now, as, as of now, there, there is an open, it's an open question and we don't know what might work out at the end. Yes. Even, so let's though, say, you know, even though, yes, locality has beautifully worked so far, but. Yeah, what I want to say is that somehow it's nice to have additional principles that can help you uh, and guide you to make guesses in this context, because most of these proposals are now guided by how do we tweak the mathematics of this or that theory or one or the other theory in order to merge them together, whereas um, somehow in addition to this mathematical intuition, one should have a very powerful physical intuition, the same way that say that Einstein was guided to, to conjecture his own theories. Uh, and somehow we are hoping that some of these theories with, with constructor theory uh, can be used to that, to, to that, to that um, end. Okay. 
All right. By the so, way, just as, just as a side note, um, Kiara mentioned Q numbers versus real numbers. Um, on the Theory of Anything podcast YouTube channel, Sam Kuypers has a lecture that he gives on what the difference between those two is. And I won't go into it, but um, for anyone who's curious about that, he, he explains the difference between those two. All right. Great. Thank you. Um, and then, um, so one of the things uh, in constructor theory, uh, it seems like, you know, there's a mention of universal constructors, but I've been kind of wondering uh, what's the relationship uh, between, say, universal explainers and universal constructor, and how do you think the constructor theory will accommodate universal explainers? What would it take, maybe, or, or do you think right now uh, the theory has um, what it takes to accommodate? Or shed light on. Actually, before I go on, uh, there is another thing that we wanted to ask you, which might be tied to it. So I'll just kind of read that out as well. This was something to do with free will that you had mentioned in the book, that unpredictability of action or free will, you said, is therefore another counterfactual that dynamical law approach does not seem to be able to accommodate, which I kind of understand now that we've kind of talked a little bit about what you mean, but maybe if you could say something about universal explainers? Yes. So um, the first thing to say is that the, so this is in, you know, the context is this theory of knowledge that uh, David Deutsch came up with um, to say, connect, uh, I would say perhaps Popperian epistemology with um, physics and the, so the seeds of this are back in uh, his, his uh, Fabric of Reality book, and then they were expanded on in the beginning of Infinity, uh, and also in this seminal paper on constructive theory, where he kind of mentions this idea of knowledge as being a kind of information that has this uh, counterfactual property of being resilient or robust. And so, in other words, it's got the ability to stay instantiated in or embodied in physical systems. And when I say information, again, um, someone might have a kind of fluffy concept in mind, uh, informally expressed, but I think it's nice to point out that in constructive theory, you can express what information is in terms of these counterfactual properties that physical systems must have. So, so that's, um, we, we, we somehow uh, brought that concept in physics. And therefore saying that knowledge is a special kind of information is another way of saying that knowledge is also a physical thing, just like um, energies uh, and so on. Now, the question is, what are the laws that knowledge obeys? And here is where you, Sadia, you were mentioning this, um, you know, idea of the universal explainers. Universal explainers are entities that can formulate universal explanations and therefore can conjecture new knowledge. Uh, And the question of how does new knowledge come into the world is um, out of no knowledge is actually a a major question that was somewhat addressed by Darwin's theory of evolution because the natural selection is one way in which knowledge, for example, the knowledge in genes um, comes about uh, and, and gets Uh, you know, tentatively constructed through evolution from very simple elementary beginnings. But of course, there's the other process that brings knowledge about, which is the process of thinking that happens in our brains and possibly happens in other entities in the universe 
uh, brains or or similar things uh, pertaining to aliens, um, you know, other civilizations that might exist in the universe. Um, and we don't know how that process really works. We know it at the descriptive level by, you know, in the epistemological sense. So we, we have this idea of conjectures and refutations and so on. But if we wanted to have like physical laws about knowledge and the way it, it, it um, grows once it's created uh, and the way, you know, why is it resilient in some contexts and it isn't in others, what creates and destroys knowledge and so on, we don't have laws about that. Uh, so the question of free will is very strongly linked with uh, the question of understanding how new knowledge is created, because whenever someone makes a choice, uh, there is some knowledge being created about, you know, the explanatory reasons why that choice is made. That's another. Um, and so the the whole of this problem of free will um, and explaining, say, knowledge creation more broadly within physics cannot be phrased even within the traditional conception because the traditional conception is just about the universe going along a specific trajectory which has a specific initial condition and once you are on that trajectory there's no knowledge or the you know that there are no choices being um really made because it's just one thing after another so in a sense the fact that i appear to have the choice now to uh, after we we spoken, I uh, you know go and read a book or go and have a walk. That isn't quite true. It's just a sort of appearance of of my um, you know experience. But actually, ultimately, I'm just executing whatever it is uh, fixed by the initial conditions of the universe. Now, in this context, I think one way of getting out of this problem, which is the thing you mentioned, is um, that you could still say that there is a certain unpredictability as far as my decision is concerned, because the only way in which, say, you uh, could come up with a prediction about what I will do and therefore show that I'm actually predetermined is to have a full simulation of me um, as a brain, let's say, uh, a copy, a clone of myself um, that will then come up with the you know, decision and then this happens before I make this decision and then you will know ahead of me what choice I will execute. But suppose that there were a principle of physics that said that um, it's actually impossible, so another counterfactual, uh, for you to come up with this simulation um, with certain limited resources that, that we have available. Well, that would be one way in which some of these statements that have been suggested in order to explain how the um, emergence of free will is actually compatible with determinism in physics could be quantitatively explained within physics. So that's one way in which I was conjecturing in the, in the book um, along the lines also of what David uh, conjectured and, and others that constructive theory could solve this problem or at least provide the tools to address the problem once and for all. So now this I, connects. Yeah, go sorry, go ahead. Well, I go ahead. I want to finish what you were saying, and then I, I have a question about it. No, I just I just wanted to and finish with this question about universal explainers that, that Sadia mentioned. Um, the this connects to the universal explainers problem because um, so constructor series is supposed to be a generalization of the quantum theory of computation to cover not just universal quantum computers or Turing machines but also those objects that von Neumann called constructors, which are programmable machines that can be programmed to perform other tasks than computations. 
um, like building a house or constructing a computer afresh or um, doing some other, uh, you know, cooking something, preparing coffee or something like that. Um, and, and then there is the universal constructor, which is like the most general software machines that has the ability to perform all computation, all um, transformations that are physically permitted. But constructors are not, don't have this free will thing. So they can be programmed and they will execute whatever program you put in them. But the, a, a thinking brain um, has the ability of uh, somehow, you know, be programmed to do something and do something else. And that's, I think, where Sadia's question was going. Can these entities also be explained within constructor theory? And the answer is, we don't know, but we are hoping that they will be explained. And the counterfactual thing is important for this. It's the key to crack this problem. So when you said that you think it will be explained, does that have something to do with the type of law or the way this comes about? What what would it be like? um, I guess, Bruce, you had a question because I kind of... Yeah, let me me ask my question. So... I was actually surprised by what you said in your book about that, Kiara. Um, you mentioned something called the, the deterministic nightmare. Uh, and the reason why I was surprised was because I had understood that problem as not existing at the level of physics, but being an emergent property of computational theory. So I, I had a thought experiment that I actually invented for a totally different purpose. But um, the thought experiment was, uh, suppose you have an eight, you know, a computer that's running one or more AGIs, and they have some sort of environment that they're living in that's sealed off from our world. Um, virtual world, it may not be very much like ours. You can imagine the computer being either a classical computer or a quantum computer. Wouldn't they then be living? I mean, like they, they aren't interacting with our physics. They're, they're completely at the emergent level, but to the best of our knowledge, according to computational universality, we should be able to make a virtual world with one or more AGIs uh, in it that are knowledge creating entities and that are people, wouldn't they then be in this deterministic nightmare, um, even though that what you call the deterministic nightmare, even though they're not part of our physics? Uh, I think they would be. Uh, but the question is, is there still a sense in which even if you assume this deterministic nightmare scenario, um, is there still a sense in which you can say that all of these AGIs, um, each of them, has uh, some inherent unpredictability as far as their own thoughts and choices. I, I um, see. So let me let me just take that one step further. Then I I would assume. I mean, like Stephen Wolfram talks about this. There is no way to predict the vast majority of deterministic computations. So presumably they aren't predictable the first time. But what if you're running two of them and one's on a slower computer? The second one would be predictable under this thought thought experiment, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be. But the question is, um, predictable means something. So here is the kind of problem that currently the sense in which predictable or computable is used uh, somewhat always referred to this um, realm of uh, the Turing machine. So the Turing machine is a highly idealized thing that... um, is already very complex and exists in, you know, it's supposed to exist uh, somehow by fiat. And then you can refer lots of statements about computability or possibility of certain things to that. So like if you had a Turing machine and blah, blah, uh, you don't worry about the resources that you need to run it. 
would you be able to say, uh, I don't know, predict that a certain program will halt or not, or something of that sort? Now, the these problems are meaningful within the current complexity theory because that's all rooted in the Turing machine model. But to give a, a physical answer, physics answer to the question, can I can uh, you know is it is it possible to predict the thoughts of a, of an of a of a kind of uh, brain that's thinking. Uh, so a physics question to that answer has to take into account other things. Uh, particularly, it has to take into account resources with which this uh, task has to be accomplished. And it's not valid to give an answer to that question, assuming that you've got a Turing machine available. And so that's where constructive theory is relevant because it goes outside of this um, complexity theory type of scenario where you're only referring everything to an existing Turing machine. And it's saying, no, Turing machines are actually uh, emergent objects that um, presuppose, I mean, they're already assuming lots of things to be available. Let's not assume that. And let's ask the question from a fundamental physics point of view. And there we don't have the answer in the sense that um, in principle, yes, it's possible. Uh, but that depends on the constraints that I'm putting on you. So, for example, if I'm asking you to do this in a, a limited amount of time with limited resources, you may not be able to do it. And the, the so all of the statements currently are very informal and they are very um, qualitative and, and a bit um, imprecise. But the hope is that with constructive theory, you can actually have a complexity theory, which is more rooted into physics than the current complexity theory. And this will also answer this question about uh, what does it mean to emulate the thinking of a human being or a brain? It, if that were true, wouldn't that violate um, universal computationality? Or the interoperability? I mean, I was actually kind of thinking along the same lines too, that is the, is the worry that what if, just to give a hypothetical, what if this new there is some new sort of a law at uh, play? Uh, um, like there's some element to it where interoperability is not possible, like, it, you know, like matter and whatever this new law uh, is operating on kind of communicate, but there are only through certain channels, but there may be other things. In other words, there may not be some sort of a unified theory that could connect the two. Okay, that's, uh, well, that's one, one reason why, okay, that's not the physics we think we have, but it could be that we are in a physics of that kind, in which case uh, lots of things to do with universal computation may not be true or might have to be revised. So that's one sure. Okay. That, that's for sure. I mean, that's one scenario uh, that's, con you know, pl possible. It's not, I don't think it's plausible. It could be, it could be the case. That that's like the case, a V but... form of dualism, um, right here that we're. Yes. Although then you would, you know, because we are thinking that there is always some way of explaining, um, let's say, if there, if there is a dichotomy of that sort, there should be a, a, a law that explains why that is, you know, that there are two kinds of information that they're not interchangeable. Mm -hmm. uh, a bit like, um, you know, when in, in GR, uh, we say that mass and energy are equivalent and mass uh, or energy couples in, with other things in the same way. There are not different kinds of masses or energies. Uh, likewise, information is similar in that sense. And if it were not, if, 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 if you had different kinds of information, then you would really have to have a good explanation for why that is. So it wouldn't be really like a dualism. It would be more like, oh, I have, uh, you know, really new groundbreaking explanation. And this would probably lead to all sorts of interesting phenomena that I can't even conceive at the moment. 
I guess in a way we we wouldn't even be able to access that. So it's almost would be kind of like uh, invoking supernatural in a way, yes. right? Okay. Yes. And in response to Bruce's question, I think the, I mean, the universality of computation is based on um, the model. So it's, it's kind of assuming a certain model of the Turing machine and the Turing machine is running with side effects and no one cares when you talk about computation, no one actually um, ever somehow models that those. And that's part of the reasons why complexity theory isn't currently satisfactory because it's satisfactory for some purposes, but it doesn't quite do the job of um, addressing all tasks. And um, that's also why the theory of computation, despite the universality of computation, is not the whole of physics. That's one other, one of the key insights, I guess, that David has in his um, uh, constructor theory paper is that that was one of the things that hooked me at the start uh, of my interest in this topic is that it's not enough to just study computers in order to understand the universe because there are things that uh, in programs are not distinguished. Um, for example, models of the universe with different values of the fine structure constant. Uh, they all Those programs are all the same as far as the theory of computation is concerned, but as far as physics, they're very different. And constructive theory is needed to extend the quantum theory of computation to the whole of physics precisely because of this reason. Okay. Um, actually, can I ask about the, the dust question? Because um, I, I was actually curious about that because it, it relates to the interoperability. In, in the book, Chiara, you mentioned this thing called that it's theoretical you made it up it's not necessarily a real thing but it, it's this thing called dust that yeah uh, only interacts with our universe uh you know through gravitation or, or something along those lines and how that would then violate the theory of, of interoperability and there would be no way to build a uh, a universal computer in such a universe uh, did I understand that correctly? First of all, I want to make sure I understood that correctly, but is that what you were trying to say in the yes. book? And then, yes. and then that was kind of inspired by dark matter, right? Because that's like one of the theories of dark matter is that it's just like what you call dust. Yeah. Yeah, I think I... Um, so I wanted to be a little bit more general. I didn't want to refer to specific models because all of them are have their own details and I didn't want to enter that specific discussion. So somehow I wanted to be very broad. But... I think the, um, yes, I, I guess this is one way of showing why understanding the physics of information has important consequences also to um, rule out or rule in or understand the implications of uh, some of these models that we have for um, the universe. For instance, the fact that we, you know, the fact that we assume that uh, computers are, um, interchangeable in some way and bits are interchangeable and that there are no two different kinds of bits that can't be um, copied onto one another also means that we are not allowed to assume that there are sectors of the universe which are not um, which are kind of severed from from uh, ours um, in a fundamental way and so you know any kind of interactions that we are if we are postulating these two sectors of the universe um, any kind of weak interaction that might happen between these two should be strong enough to be amplifiable to then perform a copy-like operation so that information in our sector, information in the other sector are interchangeable. And if they're not, 
then we have to be prepared to uh, consider the fact that you know universal computers may not be possible in the way that we think they are um, now. So that's one way of illustrating why the physics of information is not just some kind of quirky, uh, non-fundamental, emergent um, theory that maybe might be of interest for engineering and technology, but it's actually quite uh, deep and it puts lots of restrictions the same way that, um, for example, nervous theorem puts restrictions on uh, the kind of Lagrangian mechanics that we expect um, describes some of our most fundamental models um, at present. Um, this is probably an out there question, but that made sense what you just said. Why is that not also true for many worlds quantum physics, where you have worlds that decohere from each, from each other so that they can't have interoperability between them anymore? Um, does that also imply that there's no such thing as a universal computer? Oh, uh, no, that is um, not the case because the point of the, um, so the, the different, um, so the point, so the, the different branches of the multiverse are not um, universes in the same sense that say these I sectors see. are. I see. And, um, so it's, it's still possible to reconcile the existence of these universes with the interoperability of information and with the fact that in each of these uh, universes, information is interoperable. I see. Um, that actually makes perfect sense. Okay. That... So would you say that then the conservation of information is important? Because, you know, like in the multiverse thing, we can define this thing called, you know, the, the super information. So the whole idea is that they're all, you know, uh, they operate under the same laws, but there is the super information. So if, if like, like if the information was not conserved, like, first of all, I know that the way, even if it's defined, it's defined, you know, there's, uh, does that question make any sense oh, as to what I'm saying? That the, is the in, conservation yeah. of the information an important uh, thing for constructive theory, right? Yes, yes. It, uh, well, I guess maybe um, one should be a bit clear about what we mean by conservation of information, but I guess, yeah. um yeah, there is a sense in which the interoperability of information has um, some kind of analogy with the idea that uh, the type of information has to be preserved in different interactions. And uh, when you put two systems together, uh, each of which can kind of work as information medium, the composite system should still conserve the capability, you know, this, this the kind of conservation or counterfactual properties, if you like, um, and so, yeah, I think in, in a way it's, it's a good analogy to think of the interoperability of information as stating some kind of conservation of information. But when we, going back a little bit at the beginning of our discussion, we kind of discussed that what if there was, and I don't know if you use the word information there, but what if there were, what, what if the universe was creating some new laws through some sort of an evolutionary process? Um, you know, I mean, there I kind of struggle that would that, like, you know, obviously it, to me, it would seem like that the universe would be creating new information. Any thoughts on that? Or, or let's say that if, um, uh, you know, a second law of conservation turns out to have the final say. Um, I know that in, you know, the, the way the, the many worlds interpretation deals with is that the information kind of branches out. But, but let's say if somehow, you know, the, the, the universe could create, maybe we'll restrict the universe creating new laws. Um, I guess the do you think the information would be conserved or 
I, I don't know, I have some fuzzy thoughts there, but maybe. Well, it's, it's, um, th that is um, a nice question. I think, the, um, as I said, perhaps we should be a bit more clear about what we mean by conserving information. Uh -huh. um, Conser conservation basically just means that, okay, if, even if there was a new law and we discovered it, it would become part of our picture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there was some given information Yeah. since the Big Bang that we're just uncovering, right? Yeah, for example, yes, I mean, like you could think of, of um, some... So the, the fact that information is concerned, one way of thinking about it is that uh, distinguishable, things that are distinguishable, um, so the degree of distinguishability of things doesn't get changed with dynamical evolution. So, you know, if, you, if I can, you know, if I've got two states of... of a, of a system like a flag, one is red and the other one is blue. Um, and then I apply some dynamically allowed transformation uh, and I change them into some other states. Then I expect the final states of these two flags um, if we are just applying, you know, fundamental dynamical evolutions to still be distinguishable. Um, And a dynamics whereby blue and red get glued together and they turn both to be, you know, that kind of the, the flag gets, both flags get colored by the same color, are dynamics that are um, possible, but with side effects. So there has to be some uh, track of the fact that I just erased the difference between these two states. That's what a dynamical law that conserves information does. And I guess you could imagine um, a law like, you know, quantum theory that has this feature that conserves information in this sense, and then a different law that still does that, but it's just different from quantum theory. So the fact that the universe might be going through these laws as, you know, into in some of these hypothetical speculative models doesn't necessarily mean that the information gets deleted or um, erased in, in a way that violates conservation of information in the sense that I said. So yeah, I think it's possible that some of these models are compatible with the principles of information that, as we know them now. All right. Just as a side note, we are at an hour and a half, so it might be good to start wrapping this up and let yeah. Kiara um, get back to her life here. Um, and I'll be erasing this part of the, the show where I just said that. Yeah, But, sure. Uh, <laughs> no problem. Um, do we, do we want to allow any final question or should I go ahead and wrap things up? fine with me i could go on forever but yeah i think we better go this was so much fun all right yeah it was really nice i i enjoyed it too um yeah. by the way i mean i'm happy to continue conversation and you know at some other point or through emails or whatever way that would be awesome that i know that i i feel the same way as sadia this is like <laughs> great having someone to ask a lot of these questions of <laughs> thanks guys it's really nice i enjoy i enjoy it too yeah it was really nice questions too very very nice all right thank you so um kiara thank you for coming on the show we we really appreciate it this has been a an exciting episode and um i i know that i'm just very grateful for you uh, being so willing to share your time and your mind with us like this so thank you yeah thank you thank you for having me it was uh it was real fun Yeah, thank you very much, Kira. This was such a treat. Thank you very much. Great. Thank, thank you. you. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. 
to the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy, as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player. Or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.